Will you turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4? And whilst you're finding it, can I say what a privilege and joy it's been to be with you once again here in Penzance. We pray for you often down in devices, or perhaps up in devices if we're being correct. And we pray God's blessing upon you as you serve God in this part of the Southwest. Well, we are looking at Acts chapter 4, and really our thinking and consideration is found in verse number 13 down to verse number 22. And here we have a passage that deals with this subject of unbelief or disbelief. And when we think about a subject like unbelief or disbelief, we can perhaps think it to be a very small matter. And perhaps we might say that there are degrees of unbelief and that there are things that we can believe or disbelieve that may be more or less serious. For example, I may have a strong belief that a particular sports team will win a championship, and you might think differently. I might think that a particular political party will not win the next general election. You may disagree. We may have unbelief about these things. We may not believe certain matters. Well, when it comes to the Word of God, we are in a very different sphere. We are dealing with things that are true. We are dealing with things that are dependable. And we are dealing with our approach to and our belief in what God has said and what God has done. And how you respond will be an inkling and uh, an opening as to the position and attitude of our hearts. As I was thinking about this, there are perhaps a number of things that we may uh, conclude as to why we may not believe something. It could be that there is a lack of evidence. If a case goes to court and the witnesses are called and those witnesses don't come forward or there is inconsistencies, you may say that there is a lack of evidence, which means that the, uh, the accuser can't be believed. And so when we think about things, we may say, well, there's just not the evidence to support that belief or that statement. And so you may be in a situation you don't believe something because you don't think that there is enough evidence for that. Another reason why you may be in a position of unbelief is that there may be a disagreement over the interpretation of the data. We had a creation meeting at Devizes the other week, and the brother who spoke there, he is well respected in his field, he made the point that creationists and those that would hold to uh, evolution, it's not about the data that they disagree over, it's about the interpretation of the data. They come to different conclusions about the data. They see things differently and interpret it differently. Connected with this will be the way in which the evidence may be presented. I remember hearing a number of years ago, of a church that was facing difficulties. And there was a very caustic comment that was made by a person who said that this man and his wife, that they were only helping people to try and garner support 
in this situation. We don't need to go into that situation. It's not edifying for us. But it turned out, when you looked at it in more detail and you, you gathered more evidence and you heard both sides, it dis you discovered that that couple ordinarily helped people. All the time they'd been in the church, they'd looked after those that were vulnerable. And so it was portrayed and stunned in such a way as to present misinformation. And so we may not believe something because of the way that it is presented. Another reason why we may disbelieve something is because of the integrity of the reporter, the person telling you what has happened. If there are question marks over what that person is like, what they've said before, their integrity in other words, we may not believe what they are saying. I'm sure you've heard the, the fable concerning that boy who cried wolf. He repeatedly tricked his neighbours into thinking a wolf is coming and he shouts wolf and the whole town comes running and he laughs at them. And then after a period of time, after many false alarms, he cries wolf again. But this time there is a wolf and they don't believe him. Why? Because they couldn't trust his integrity. And we know what happened to that boy. He was eaten by the wolf. When we think about the word of God, people may say, well, I don't believe the word of God. I don't believe the Lord Jesus Christ because they say that the evidence isn't strong enough. Or perhaps they say, well, the Bible isn't to be taken literally, so there is a problem with the interpretation or the presentation of the information. Others may say, I can't believe the gospel message because I know Christians who are hypocritical, and therefore I'm not listening. Well, when we think about all of that, what we have here in Acts chapter 4, we have unbelief that is on a completely different realm. We have unbelief which at its root is evil and in its fruit or its outworking is evil as well. And we could say that the unbelief here in chapter 4 and verses 13 to 22 is what we might describe as being malignant. Now the word malignant is a word we often use in connection with cancer and it speaks about cancer that is no longer confined to a particular organ or tissue but it is now spread. And if you looked in a dictionary you would see that the word malignant really means something that is evil in nature or evil in effect. Now, why might the unbelief of this Sanhedrin, that's who was gathered here, this is who is interrogating Peter and John, they are there and we find that their unbelief is staggering because of its evil. And so the first thing to note is that the evidence of the man that is being healed is indisputable. Acts chapter 4 Peter and John have continued in their defense of what has happened in chapter 3, and they are there because of the healing that took place with this man who was paralyzed. He was lame. 
Now, we've already made reference to this beginning of the service, but he was a man who was taken daily to the temple by his friends, and there he was placed in the same spot day after day, hoping and praying that people may be kind to him and generous to him and perhaps give him a few alms. He had done this day in and day out. He would have been a familiar sight in Jerusalem, And for those worshippers that were going into the temple, they would have had to have passed him frequently. Now, they may never have spoken to him. They may never have given any eye contact to him. But they would know who he was, and they would have known the plight that he was in. And he has been in this condition, we read of, for 40 years. He's over 40 years of age. There he is, laid at the temple environments for all of those days, weeks, and years. He also has to be carried. And so the sight of that poor man being carried by friends would have been unmissable. But what has happened to this man and the miracle that has taken place is indisputable. They have seen him paralyzed, they have seen him begging, they have seen him in his need, and after meeting with Peter and John, he's now able to stand, walk, leap, and praise God. This hasn't occurred in some dark corner, and so there's been a bit of a switch, there's been a bit of an illusion taking place. No, this is a healing that took place in full sight of the people that were there. And there's no question about the reality, nor indeed the sincerity of the miracle. And furthermore, this man that was paralyzed and cannot walk is now stood next to Peter and John. The evidence is indisputable. When you look at the Old Testament, we find a similar thing. We have Pharaoh. Remember Pharaoh, how he was king over Egypt and he witnessed the plagues that came upon his land. He witnessed uh, the Nile being turned into blood. He witnessed the frogs and the lice. He witnessed the, the boils and he witnessed the darkness that took place. The evidence proved the existence and the power and the authority of God. There's no question about the evidence and yet we find Pharaoh hardening his heart. There wasn't a problem with the quality of the evidence. There wasn't a question about the reliability of the evidence, yet Pharaoh wouldn't believe. We could come to the New Testament, we could think about the Lord Jesus Christ, and there are evidence and evidences about his compassion, his holiness, his manner of life, his speech, his power, his authority. It is without question, it's without dispute. And often when he came head to head with the religious elite, with the, religious elite the Pharisees of the day, They couldn't deny the miracle that had been performed. They couldn't trap him and catch him out in some lapse in moral judgment or anything like that. And we find that even though they witnessed great miracles, great compassion, great tenderness by the Savior, they still had that audacity and that evil to say that he has done this by the power of of the devil. So, for example, on one occasion, there he is healing the man who had the demons, 
delivers, them, delivers him of those demons, sends him into the swine, and we find the religious leaders want nothing to do with him, want him out of the place. And they say that he's done this by the power of Beelzebub. We find that at the tomb of Lazarus, Jesus commands that this man is brought forth. Now, if he were a charlatan or an illusionist, uh, then they would have all the proof that they would need. Lazarus is so dead that his family plead with Jesus not to do it because he's been dead for four days and decay and decomposition will already be taking place. But what happens? The man that had been buried is called forth by Jesus and he emerges with those bandages that he'd been laid in that tomb with. He is now alive in their presence. You cannot question the evidence. It is plain for them to see. And yet what we find is that after that, they want to put him to death. They sought how to destroy him. Another occasion, we find the resurrection of Jesus. He emerges out of the tomb. The tomb had previously been covered with a great stone, and the soldiers guarding that tomb see a vision of angels. They are terrified, and on reporting this to the Jewish leaders, they find that now a story is concocted whereby the disciples have stolen the body. The evidence is overwhelming, and yet they'd rather propagate a lie. And so when we think about these things, there is in the heart of man, there is in our hearts, that sinister, evil unbelief. When we consider the gospel, the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, it will demand a response from us. We will either believe it or we will reject it. And we could go in this room tonight and there will be those that will believe it. And we pray that that is the majority, if not all of us. But there will be some who disbelieve it. And certainly, if we went out into Penzance tonight, we could divide people into two groups. Those that believe and those that don't believe. When we think about the evidence, about the existence and the presence of God in creation... The reliability, the truthfulness of the word of God, the dealings of God in the past and present. There's plenty of evidence available. The evidence is without question, and it speaks of God. Paul writing in Romans chapter 1, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Or in Psalm 19, verse 1, we read a little while ago, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. God is displayed in his creation, and yet what happens? Men, women, boys and girls will not believe. It's not a problem with the evidence, it's a problem with the heart, the unbelieving heart. We could think about the way in which the world around us proves the truth of Scripture. The Bible makes it clear that this world is ruined, that it's in decline because of sin. And as we look out into the world, we see that commentary being played out. There is war, there is sickness, there is disease, there is anger, there's bitterness, there's crime, there's brokenness and division in families. And so the world actually supports 
In its conduct, what the Bible testifies. When we think about all of these things, the question comes to us, what think ye of Christ? Tonight, what do you think of the claims of Jesus? With all that evidence, what are you going to do with it? The second thing to note is that the interpretation of what had happened is also without doubt. These religious leaders have heard from Peter and John concerning the source of this miracle. They have been told that it was by the power of Jesus Christ. They haven't tried to claim something that wasn't true. They make it very clear that they have done this not in their own abilities or according to their own holiness, but by the power and through the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Peter in verse number 10, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead by him, this man stands here before you whole. The uh, Sanhedrin Council, many of these religious leaders, they know who Jesus was, they can identify that these disciples, Peter and John, that they were uneducated, untrained men, but that they had been with Jesus. And so they know that this man has been healed in the power of that name. There's no doubt as to what has taken place. There's no doubt as to the source of this power. There's no doubt to who is responsible for the healing of this man. Furthermore, we find that if you look down at verse uh, number four, that there is a here that there is a number of people that also believed. They have seen, they have heard the explanation, and they have believed in the name of God. How many were here? How many believed? Five thousand people believed the evidence. Five thousand people believed what had been told them concerning the source of this power. And yet, this religious elite do not believe. In fact, they will not believe. There is a malignant unbelief. And you have the sense as you read through the narrative that there's a degree of exasperation with these religious leaders. They have already dealt with the problem of Jesus, so they thought they'd put him to death. And when he rose again, they they concocted that story that he'd been taken by his disciples. And here are his disciples doing the same things that Jesus himself had done. And they want nothing to do with him. There is an unbelief that has evil in its roots and also evil in its outworking. Well, there's no question about the genuineness of this miracle nor is there any doubt about the explanation of this power. Remembering all the time that this man is stood next to Peter and John. But having heard and seen all that they had done with their experience of who Jesus was and what he had done, we find that their unbelief brought about a reaction. We might think that with all the evidence they may bow down in humility and acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord. 
not a chance. We find that these people, having seen everything, heard all of the things, they now resort to threatening. They don't want the name of Jesus uh, to be spread abroad. And so they ban these disciples from mentioning or speaking about this name. They had censorship even back here in the first century. And now they're going to use all of their powers to try and silence these men of God. We find a similar response with Pharaoh, mentioned him earlier. He saw the work of God. He even admitted that it was the finger of God upon them. He even desires that Moses would intercede, stand in the place to plead for them that the plagues may be halted. He even shows some degree of concern that the, the, the plagues may be stayed and that he may, uh, that the God would be merciful to them, that he would believe and trust and allow what God had required. And yet he hardens his heart. Even after the death of the firstborn in the nation, remembering his firstborn had died, he quickly changes his mind and tries to recapture the fleeing Hebrews. It is staggering to think that he thinks that he's able to defy God and go and fight, as it were, against him. We can think about the trial of the Lord Jesus Christ and the, the events that led up to it. Uh, the, the evidence and the proof that he was the son of God was evident and still they decided uh, they wanted him dead. Even though uh, Pilate's wife had that vision and said, have nothing to do with this man, Pilate still washed his hands and handed Jesus over for them to do as they pleased with him. They don't turn from their sin. They don't fall in humility, seeking the mercy of God. But rather, it is as if it were they double down their diligence in trying to destroy him. And at their trial, they shriek, crucify him. And at the resurrection, they produce a fairy tale rather than believe what was staring them in the face. Their reaction demonstrates an evilness in their heart. And here we have the same thing. The evidence is overwhelming. The explanation is right. The events cannot be questioned. And yet this same evil, devilish determination by the Sanhedrin is manifested in their determination to silence these apostles. Don't think that all you need is a few more signs and wonders. We have in the word of God all that we need. Don't think the people outside, if only they saw a spectacular thing, then they would believe. The Sanhedrin saw it and didn't believe. Many people witnessed what happened in Egypt and they didn't believe. Many people witnessed the miracles of Jesus Christ and they didn't believe. The evidence is there. To believe the gospel. Many people today would say, well, if only the message was put forward in a better way. Well, there may be truth in that. We need to be careful how we present the gospel. But at its root, there is a determination by people 
by us, if God has not worked in our hearts, that we are unbelieving. We will not believe. It's not a case of we can't believe because, well, of course, we don't, there's not enough evidence. It's we will not believe, even though it is so obvious to us. And when it comes to the word of God, we find that what God clearly says, the natural heart, our hearts would, would say, if we are unconverted or what we said before we were converted, we rebel and we reject. For example, the Bible will tell us, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. What does the world say? What does our heart say? What did we say before we were converted? How absurd. In our pride and arrogance, we say, I'm good enough to go to heaven. I'm good enough to get to God just as I am. We don't believe what God says. We're going to do it our way. The Bible tells us to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and we will be saved And the world would say, our hearts would say, well, we don't need to be saved. I can get to heaven by myself. The Bible says that there's salvation in none other. The world would say, it doesn't matter what you believe. As long as you're sincere, after all, all roads lead to God. I can get there the way that I determine. We are not taking God at his words. The Bible will tell us how that there is a hell to escape. And yet the world argues and says there could be no such place. Or there is no way that I am bad enough to go to such a place. The Bible is very clear. And yet, in our unconverted state, we will reject. You may be here tonight. And the Bible tells you, tells me, tells us all that whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And you say to yourself, well, that doesn't include me. That doesn't include me. You're not taking God at his word. You are disbelieving the word of God. The Bible also tells us that as far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. What do we say when we're in a state of unbelief or we're lacking assurance? We say, well, that can't be the case. My sins are too bad. I've got my sins. God could never forgive me. Christ could never atone for what I have done. We are not taking God at his word. We are not trusting what the Savior has said. We are disbelieving him. When we look at the word of God, we have ample evidence that God came and he deals with sinners, even the vilest of sinners. The Lord saved Paul, that murderous persecutor of the people of God. The Lord saved Manasseh. The Lord forgave Peter, the one that denied his saviour. The Lord forgave David, who committed great adultery with Bathsheba. God has formed because he saves. He has done it before and he promises it still. When we think about what God has said, God cannot lie. And if we do not believe what God says, then we're either saying that God is not able to do what he says or God will not do what he says. Either way, we're in very, very serious ground. We may be a Christian and it could be an issue of baptism. You say, well, I'm waiting for a specific call or a specific word from God. The Bible has made it clear 
repent and be baptized. You say, well, that's not for me. I know of people who are 70, 80, even older, that they're still waiting for their word to come from God. It's already in the word of God. Repent and be baptized. Sometimes people say, well, uh, concerning evangelistic endeavors, well, I haven't been called, or it's not for me, or I can only go if the Lord makes it very clear to me. How much clearer does it need to be for you? Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. It doesn't mean that we necessarily all have the gifts and the calling to be preachers, but we are to take the gospel out with us and to the people round about. It could be that we have other matters. Perhaps you're struggling with a problem, a, life, a great burden or great difficulty in your life. You don't pray about it. You don't cast it on the Lord. Uh, you perhaps reason that the Lord isn't able to deal with it. Or he doesn't care about it. Or he's not able to help in this situation. What are we saying? God is not able to do what he says he can do. God says, cast your cares upon me, for he careth for you. When we look at God's word, we see how God has appeared for his people how he delivers on occasion, on many occasions, he provides for his people. And even through trials, God sustains. It doesn't mean that God removes that trial. Sometimes he does, but not always. But he will give the strengthening that is required. You can think about Stephen. There he was, facing his accusers later on in Acts of the, the Apostles. He's being accused, he's then going to be sentenced to death, and the stones will then start falling on his head. The Lord doesn't remove those stones from him, but rather he's given that strength to endure them, and he sees the opening of heaven ready and waiting for him. Remember the one who had his daughter that was sick? He says, Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. Sometimes people think that unbelief is a Christian virtue. Have you heard that before? I could never presume upon what God has promised. If God has promised it, if God has said it, if God has declared it, who are we to say otherwise? We are to take God at his word. And don't think that our unbelief is a neutral position. Because even if we, as it were, try to sit on the fence, we are saying I do not believe. And unbelief, when it comes to the gospel, has eternal consequences. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, seeing it as a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. And to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, when he shall come to be glorified in the saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. What a serious consequence there will be for those that obey not the gospel. This evening, how do we stand? Are we like this Sanhedrin council? We know about Jesus. We know his power. We know that he is merciful. We know that he's come to save sinners. And yet we say, 
we will have nothing to do with him. If that is the case, he will come and take vengeance upon them that obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one that calls us to himself. Come unto me, all ye that labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He is the one with arms outstretched to save. And this unbelief that we were in, the, we're in these people was evil in its root and evil in its fruit. And unless God changes our heart, that is the unbelief that we have. May the Lord help us. May our unbelief give way to belief. And may we trust in the Saviour and look to him and be saved. Amen.